Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Builders Build podcast. Uh, I'm your host, George Poo. Here at Builders Build, we're always working hard to invite great speakers who can add lots of value and aspiring and existing entrepreneurs every day. And today I'm super excited to welcome Jake Krishnan, who is the co-founder of CEO of Accelerator Center Waterloo. Uh, and the reason why I'm so excited about inviting Jay on the podcast is because Jay has an experience of both being an entrepreneur, being a venture capital general partner, and also being a supporter of entrepreneurs, which comes hand in hand into his being the CEO of Accelerator Center and Accelerator here in Waterloo, Canada, helping entrepreneurs around the world build their next venture. So Jay, thank Hey, thanks, George. It's uh, always exciting to chat with you. So I'm really looking forward. Thank you for having me. No problem. Awesome. So like Jay, first tell us more about, you know, Accelerator Center Waterloo, uh, how you're. Yeah. So the organization itself has had the incredible luxury of, uh, working with entrepreneurs from the region, you know, folks like you and your startups on the heels of that success. I joined the Accelerator Center a year ago. And what we do today is really three things. Number one, we focus on curating incredible ideas building a business model around them and taking them to market. And that's our bread and butter. It's, uh, it's what we do. It's called the AC incubate program. The second thing that we do is we run a series of smaller programs that have a flavor of acceleration and they're shorter duration. These are targeted either to work with corporate partners in the ecosystem and, or to solve problems that are given to us. And we find entrepreneurs to address those problems or to work with these, um, partners. So that's the second pillar and that is focused on acceleration. And the third one is to enable founders, the best founders that there are across the world to come to Canada through some of the programs that we've launched under the uh, umbrella of uh, the international frontier. So those are really the three verticals, uh, if you will, uh, three pillars through which different types of stages and sectors of entrepreneurs can uh, reach out to us and we help them grow, achieve scale, have fun, raise capital, get to IPOs, et cetera. Whatever else keeps the entrepreneur's mojo going. Okay. That's awesome. Like what type of companies, I guess, is the best to join the Accelerator Center? Mm. Uh, because it sounds like. Yeah. It's a great question because a lot of times entrepreneurs think of themselves as having built a product that the world eventually will need, right? Nobody goes out there, builds a product that says, well, the world doesn't need it. And if they do hit that realization, they pivot very quickly. So in our case, <clears throat> our focus is really early stage, uh, pre-seed stage. These are people with great ideas or great people uh, with a not so great idea, but can potentially become a great solution. And so what we do with these early stage folks is a, we have a playbook that allows them to sequentially build the product, get to market, achieve product market fit, eventually scale and hit revenue. But the way we do it has a very high touch flavor. So we have expert mentors on board. The mentors work with the founders using the playbook that we've designed and these, uh, and, and the mentors really enable themselves, not just to give guidance, but get involved with the build out of the company. So that's mm -hmm. the stage that's most interesting and appealing to us. Very early stage. Okay. And, and I think as an early stage startup, I think a lot of the challenges is revolving around validation of their assumptions, validation of their products. How is AC helping founders to develop? Yeah, that's a tough one. Largely because entrepreneurs generally live in this world where there's a fine line between building what's not there and what's not there, right? So that, that fine line is why entrepreneurs exist. 
And the reason I mention that is it's impossible for anybody else other than the entrepreneur to, to realize the vision that she or he has in his, uh, in their heads. Now, in order to get there, the only way to do idea valid, the only way to do validation is eventually you do product validation followed by market validation. But the first piece of validation that starts before you get to market is idea validation. And the only way to do idea validation is you run it by a bunch of hypotheses. Is there a competitor who's there? Is there a price point that is offering the same value profit at lower cost? Is there another policy recommendation or a substitute product that's going to come out and make this obsolete? Um, so I think all those validations fall in the idea bucket. And I think that's where we play a role in the four phases of our program, closer to phase three, that these ideas get validated. As they get closer to graduation towards the um, end of the program, the validation comes in the form of the, the market and the customer. So I think the best form of, uh, of validation is always the customer. But I think before you take it to the customer, you sort of want to validate it uh, hypothetically because a lot of times customers don't know what they don't know also. Right? So I think that's the right sequence in, in, in providing validation. Yep, I think that's a great answer. We'll get to, we'll get back to AC in a bit. I want to first start the podcast by, you know, talking more about you as an entrepreneur, because how you started, like, I think I believe two companies, but please correct me if I'm wrong. So yeah, let's talk more about like, you, you know, your early stage of your career. Like <laughs> what made you decide you want? Yeah. So I, I went to the U S after my engineering for grad school and the thesis that I worked on with my advisor was uh, a partial component of, of a startup that he had built. And it ended, up, it ended up going places, but largely because of the merits of uh, the work that he had put in. So that was my first foray into a startup. So while I was employee number one, really the founder was my professor. But the success of that is what led me to join a startup in the Boston area in the communications voice over IP space. Um, that company eventually went public, a company called Brooktrout got uh, listed in the NASDAQ and then demerged and got acquired by a private equity fund, et cetera. So that, that was a remarkable journey where I understood the value of being relevant, that you might have a great product and go IPO, but you need further capital to sustain it and pivot it and be relevant. And then I started uh, my own startup in the IoT space, tracking physical assets across the value chain and be appealed to everybody from dairy farms all the way to high-end lithography machines. So that company went on to get acquired by uh, a fairly large conglomerate in India called the Birlas. I worked with them as a part of their earnout, and the the entrepreneurial itch was too strong. So I, my my co-founders and I we stepped mm -hmm. out and started another startup, which didn't go anywhere. We were doing quite well. We did raise a fair amount of. I'm sorry, we clocked a fair amount of revenue, raised a seed round. And then we realized we got to a point where there was a divergence of vision between the investors as well as the founders. So we shut shop on that one. And, but between those two journeys, I also had worked as a product engineer, as well as a product manager, and also managed a fairly large team in organizations like Brooktrot, which was under Intel after some time, Juniper Networks, uh, and the systems. So a reasonable amount of middle management experience with these corporates. And on either side of it, I had a startup experience. So that's, it's kind of the mm. background. And then towards the end of my it was the latter half of my career before the AC. I, I started a seed fund. We made a handful of investments from that fund. We did deals cross-border between India and the US. And like any other fund, some of it was successful, some of it was not. 
I just got to a point where I felt a need to be operating as opposed to just investing, which is what got me to the AC. That's really interesting. Yeah. That's kind of like the entrepreneurial journey. I, I don't like this. Like the, these companies that you have joined, be the first employee and started mm-hmm. and even other ventures that you, that you said didn't work out eventually. So what were the biggest learnings mm-hmm. of like those companies? Because I believe that was in your twenties, if I'm correct. correct. So, what- so the first one was in my twenties and the successful one was the, the one that I sold was in my thirties and, okay. and the one that failed was in my late thirties. So I think the okay. biggest learning George is people. If you get in bed with the right set of people, the earlier, the better. And the corollary, mm-hmm. the, the, the flip of it is also true, right? If you have the wrong set of people, you're better off snipping the card as opposed to trying to make it work over a period of time. I think to me, that's the most intuitive and yet the most difficult learning. Be in play, at the right place mm-hmm. at the right time with the right set of people. That's the most important thing. I think the second mm-hmm. one is uh, adhering to your philosophy. It's if you believe in the philosophy of wanting to build a hundred million dollar company, your ability to raise capital should not shift that goalpost in a way that you pitch to investors saying, Hey, listen, I want to be- become a unicorn. and I want to build a billion dollar company because the problem with that is twofold. One is you ask the investor for cash and then you end up appealing to whatever the investor wants to hear, not what you want to do. And the second problem mm-hmm. is once you raise that money, you're on a different trajectory. You're on now this trajectory that you sold to the investor to build this billion dollar company as opposed to taking 12 months to build a 10, to build a 24 months, to build a 50 and 36 months to build a hundred million dollar company. And these are fundamentally different trajectories and how you go about building product. So I think staying true to your philosophy and correspondingly raising the right amount of money at the right time. I think that's the second piece of advice. And the last one I would say is culture. It's the most difficult thing to build as you grow the organization, but it's important because if that one doesn't matter, if that one doesn't work, the first two will not matter. So constantly allocating time as a founder to questioning what is the culture of the company that I'm building and spending time towards it, as opposed to hoping that it turns into a particular culture. I think that's, it's very key. So you've got to be proactive. So yeah, mm-hmm. those are the three things. I think that's very interesting. Let's start one, like being, you know, with the right people. I think it's always like this uh, constant, I guess, doubt among like early entrepreneurs about who they should bring on mm-hmm. um, as co-founders. And I think, you know, even for my very first student venture back in the days, like I, I was starting out with people I admire in my club. I have the smartest people, you know, who's like math, uh, very smart in math and physics, mm-hmm. like, you know, really prominent friends who, who are very talented mm-hmm. and it didn't work out the first student event. So like I, that's where I learned, I think like, you know, it's, it's not great trends just because you're good at yeah. something. You need people who are really invested into working startup. Yep. And that is very different from, you know, working at Google, working at Microsoft. And I've even heard the saying that if you are interviewing people at for a startup, you shouldn't be interviewing people who are also taking job offers or who are also in Google and Microsoft <laughs> for the engine role, right. which I found interesting. Yeah, it's a tricky one. I, I would go for traits and characteristics more than skills and experience. I mean, obviously skills and experience matter, you know, but I would have traits and characteristics trump skills and experience. So I'll try and give an example. You ideally want an all, a co-founder for sure, but at least for the second set of hires, you definitely want a bunch of people who bring an insane amount of energy. 
I think that to me is the most common denominator, right? So if you don't bring an outrageous amount of energy, which is infectious and continuous all the time, it's going to be difficult because entrepreneurship is all about challenges. And if you don't have the right attitude to address those challenges, you're signing up for trouble. So, and if you are a founder, the likelihood of that individual maintaining that energy levels continuously is very, while it's high, it's, it's, you need a shoulder to cry on who can also pat up, right? And, and say, all right, if you can do it, I'm going to do it. So, but between the two, if both turn incredibly negative and go, shit, we're in, you know, deep trouble, companies in trouble. So you need one to always step up and take the game over, take the game to the next level when the other one is struggling. So I would say insane energy levels is the first characteristic. The second one mm -hmm. is a high degree of optimism. That's the second characteristic. Because if you lose your optimism and you start playing devil's advocate all the time, that's the energy that you spread and that's the culture that you end up. So I would say that's the second trait that you look for in a co-founder. When it comes to stuff that's a little more objective, my recommendation would be, and it's very hard because I, I haven't done this well myself, is to find someone who is your opposite, right? So if I'm good at business development and marketing, I would find somebody who's exceptionally better than me in and If I'm good at product, I would find somebody who's exceptional in technology. We tend to look at ourselves through our lens with our own bias, right? So I think the challenge is the ability to understand what we are missing as individuals and go find somebody who will bring the exact opposite skills, not traits, skills that you bring to the table. So I think that's, that's measurable. That's very doable. So I would, I would profess on that. And lastly, I think the one that's difficult, but really required is to be able to let go of people when it's not working out because it'll get toxic after that. And mm -hmm. by toxic, I mean, it's a chemistry issue, right? There's no right or wrong in, in both the personalities and individuals. It's just a question of alignment of culture, alignment of goals, alignment of the mission statement, etc. So yeah, so the boldness and the courage to let go of people should be part of the entrepreneurial journey. Yep. Those are very interesting points. And I think I, I feel alignment for a few of those points <laughs> myself for sure. Let's talk about the second point you previously mentioned. It's like the alignment with investors, mm -hmm. which is like an under-talked topic in tech. Mm -hmm. Because like once you get investors on your board, once you get investors in your sheet, you can't really say anything negative about them. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's what I found. They're found, I, at least publicly. Mm -hmm. So there's like, there's a lot of like information missing on the internet mm -hmm. or in like the, just in the tech alignment with investors. And I think when a company not having the investors, which I think is, it's partly in your case, mm -hmm. do, do not have the right investors, it tends to fall apart right. like quickly. So what are the do to feel like, to remind them? Yeah, there are two things that come to mind. One is the earlier they're around, you uh, want to choose an investor who is either going to add value or is completely passive. You don't want somebody in the middle. And the reason for that is just wrong manifestations, right? So I'll give you an example. If you have an angel investor who does not come from the tech world, but buys into your story of wanting to change something. And if you try the experiment, let's say you are a startup that's in the SaaS, uh, enterprise SaaS space, right? That you have a CRM tool mm -hmm. and you go out yep. selling and you realize that you don't have the MRRs that you projected on your uh, projections. And the investor is now going to say, well, maybe you should try going to the US because really that's where all the enterprise action is. Now, if this investor 
opens a couple of doors, it's one thing. But if the investor has not been in the enterprise SaaS, it's going to be difficult for the entrepreneur to try this experiment and figure out if it works or does not work. I, I don't think it's the right thing to do. The right thing to do would be to stay away from that advice politely by saying, listen, I'm going to try two more pivots. I'm going to try a channel experiment in Canada before I go to the US. Experiment number two, I'm going to work with a partner in a new geography, maybe even the US, before I myself go there, because that will then test the waters. And Experiment number three, I'm going to reduce the price point. Now, if the investor does not get these theories, he or she is just going to be adamant. So you're better off in this particular example, getting an investor who's culturally not on your case and is a passive investor. Whereas if you get an investor who's active, then you want to make sure that this investor comes from your world or adds value. You don't, the worst thing to do is have an active investor who doesn't get it. And the other one is a passive investor who's in your space. So those are the two you want to avoid, right? The ones that you want to get mm -hmm. are passive investors who are not in your space or active investors who are in your space. So I would say pick either end. Don't hang out in the middle, especially early stage. So that's advice number one. That's Because otherwise you'll just end up spending too many discussions with these investors that go back and forth and you'll probably end up doing what you don't like to do. And you can avoid all of that mm -hmm. if you just choose one of these two lanes. So that, I, I would rec recommend that as the first one, first piece of advice. The second one is philosophy, right? Just be bold and open that I'm here to build a 20, you know, $20 million company. I'm here to build a $30 million company. The problem today is that everybody is trying to appeal to the investors to build a $10 billion company. And that may not be the case, which also means that investors, at least the institutional investors, may not necessarily be willing to write a check because they're now in a position where they look at the size of the universe. And if you're telling me that you'll start a 30, end with a $30 million company, likelihood of you building a $3 million company is reasonable. So they've also ended up calibrating mm -hmm. their own brains to do a... 10x, 100x, whatever the projection is. So it's a bit of a dichotomy, but I think it's better to be real to yourself and honest to yourself than pitching what the investor wants to. And, and how do you determine investors are active and which ones are passive? Because like, I feel like there are some investors who say they're going to be active, <laughs> coming out really become really passive. And there are investors who I guess are honest about they're just being passive, <laughs> which is fine. Right. Um, yeah, I think in the uh, angel world, it's easy. right? And, and that's really the world where you want to have this judging mechanism. In the institutional world, there is an obligation almost by the investor to be closer to active than passive. So in mm -hmm. the institutional world, I don't think it's as much as a worry because you, the, the, the institutional investor typically will appoint a board. There's somebody on the board or the observer who has some knowledge in the area or has a company that's in the same value chain. So I guess the question is really, on the angel side, how do you identify this individual and see if they're active passive? And I think the classic answer is ask them where else have they invested? Okay. The other companies that they've invested in, are they well-known companies? And is there a bit of a luxury to actually even reach out to those companies? It might be difficult for entrepreneurs because your entrepreneurs are generally desperate and a little hungry and they don't have the necessary tools to ask the investor, hey, can I do a diligence on you? Maybe that's mm -hmm. generally not done. Yeah. <laughs> but if you're the right set of investor, you'll probably appreciate that question because you're now banking on a founder who's going to go do the same thing in the market when it comes to uh, 
customer acquisition, right? He's, he or she's going to ask the right questions. So that's the way to look at it if you're an investor as opposed to getting intimidated. That's one way to do it. The other way is do it completely offline. Research about the investor. If they themselves are active, they are likely publishing the investments uh, that they've made in uh, public forums. So I would imagine, mm -hmm. so it, it really boils down to a conversation. I think it's better to have a frank and open conversation with the investor. Yeah. Lastly, from an operational standpoint, I guess you could set up a cadence and say, well, let's set up a weekly call or a monthly call. And then you're forced to ask the questions, the right questions, and the investor is forced to give you the answers right or wrong. So I think that's what I would do. Mm. And, and I think what you shouldn't say about CertFit is really important because mm -hmm. like, even for us, like as like a fintech company, to a lot of investors as well. And I think, you know, some folks clearly understand the fintech dynamic in and out. Mm -hmm. Whereas like some folks say they're, they understand fintech, but you can just clearly say, there, it's not it's like okay. it's not as deep as you would have hoped they would have been. So it's definitely so. Is that what you meant about like uh, like it's exactly someone with deep understanding knows what is going on? Right? Exactly, exactly, exactly. The these are also the investors who will have who will do two things, right? One is obviously open up the right doors, and the second is because they've been involved. Let's say fintech, for example, right? If you find an investor who's been in the payment space. The likelihood of this investor having interacted with the uh, channel partners and eventually corporates who are their customers is very high. If they've chosen a B2C route, then they probably integrated with a distribution channel that brings a bunch of B2C transactions to them. Right? So for, their, mm -hmm. for this payments individual to give advice to an entrepreneur in the peer-to-peer -peer lending space is interesting because the two lenses through which they bring value are partnerships and distribution just based on this example, right? And I would mm -hmm. recommend there to, to your point that the choice of the investor on the basis of understanding one part of the financial value chain in depth is good because then they'll get the value chain, the entire transaction history, the customer experience from discovery all the way to lending reasonably well. Uh, and if they don't, you could talk to them about your business model and they'll get it because they've been involved in one area. So to me, I think that's the right set of investors. Someone who's in your value chain and who understands one part of the business quite well and very easily will pick up the rest of the business once you explain. Yeah, that's a great response. I also think a lot of early stage founders make the mistake of like going to venture investors too early, Yeah, which I'm sure you're aware. So I, I will ask like, Jay, what do you think, when is the right time for early stage company to be approaching a venture yeah, this one, I've actually changed my opinion on this over the last few years, right? About five years ago, I would have said, go to the investor when the time is right, right? And when you think you are beyond product market fit and uh, you're looking to scale into that inflection point is very close by and you need capital to execute. Now, my opinion is converse with investors all the time. With the idea that you're not always fundraising, but your ability to give information to the investors on a continuous basis lets them think that you are the person um, that they want to invest in when the time is right. Because if uh, he or she is not doing it with any agenda, the likelihood of him or her staying current with the market, talking to customers all the time, talking to the accounts all the time, is very high. So. I think mm -hmm. conversing with investors continuously, I think is a good idea. Now, that being said, okay. I think there's got to be also clarity that this is purely for me to 
appraise the investor and more importantly to get information from the investor because VCs are talking to entrepreneurs all the time and to be able to get that information from their heads when you have a conversation is actually quite valuable. Now in reality what will happen is when you reach out to investors they're going to say well we're going to pass on this deal because I've seen this before or you're too early can you send me a pitch tip? I think the response to that is you don't reach out to the partners. You reach out to the associates and the principals and say, there's no agenda. I just want to let you know this is what I'm up to. Love to hear from you in terms of advice for five minutes, right? And if they say no, that's fine. At least you, at least they know that you're the kind of person who reaches out every quarter, every three months or so. Yeah. I, I think that's actually great advice. Personally, I've been actually doing this for, well, I mean, we haven't started raising uh, yet, mm -hmm. but I actually been talking to a lot of VC firms. Like not with an agenda, like you said, it was actually just getting to know the partners yeah. because I, I understand how important the journey ahead is mm -hmm. I want to find the right partners. So there's no agenda on the call with them, just brief introductions mm -hmm. and giving them periodic updates and telling them, okay, when the time comes, yeah. I'll let you know. So I, I think that's exactly what you said. That's awesome. And it's, a, it's a definitely the correct, yeah. correct, hopefully the correct way uh, <laughs> to do it. So yeah, let's talk more. Okay. Now more about, you know, the accelerator uh, itself, <laughs> about your journey of, so tell us more about like your. You know, you already made like your journey in India joining Accelerator. Mm -hmm. Let's talk more about your journey of joining the, the Accelerator Center Waterloo. Like, mm -hmm. what was the journey of becoming the CEO? So I think the first part of it was me trying to figure out which uh, geography slash ecosystem I want to be in. And this is at the end of the two years of lockdown that the world suffered in, that I realized the ecosystem that is reasonably unheralded is the Kitchener Waterloo or area. Largely because there's a fair amount of IP, there's a great academic pedigree because of the institutions in the region, and yet it doesn't make a lot of noise it's like the Boston area does, or Silicon Valley does, or Beijing does. So question number one in my head was, what does it take for me to play a role in that ecosystem? I guess one question before that is, okay, which geography do you want to go to given your, and in my case that was answered by, well, I want to go to a country which has a value system that wherein IP and tech and governance is appreciated and, and Canada really checked off all those boxes. Uh, and then of course the Krishna Waterloo choice of the region. So yeah, sorry, I uh, interviewed with the AC board, the board of the AC. And uh, one thing led to another, everything went well, great conversations all around, and uh, I landed up with the role. And the continuation of the journey has been, all right, what do we do now as an organization to make it, to make the organization more effective for founders? And that's where being able to put together a whole bunch of new programs and new playbooks, and to be able to draw and attract founders from outside the Waterloo area, all came in. So to go back to the latter part of your question, I think the journey at the AC obviously still continues, but the post joining the AC, the first few changes within the AC have been all around this new vision of ours, the 2025 vision of becoming the full stack hub in the world, number one full stack hub in the world, right? So, so everything that we're doing today is to try and ascertain that. And talk us more about when by of Yeah, it's, it's commentary straight out of either marketing or, or or software stack, right? But the idea behind the full stack hub is, A, can we be a hub or an ecosystem that appeals to all stages of founders? You're an ideator, seed, angel, series A, whichever stage you are in, can we add value to you? So that's the first 
dimension of the of the full stack. The other one is the sector. What sectors can we represent such that we have a fairly large touch point with a multitude of founders that are out there in the region? So to achieve both the, to, to to achieve a suboptimal area behind those two dimensions, we launched three pillars: the community pillar, under which we have multiple programs, including the incubate program, appeals to a whole bunch of founders across the value chain from really idea stage all the way to uh, Series A stage. Right? So we have we've had founders like yourself, other founders who are are much more experienced and have no idea how to build a business, but their technology is great. So all that goes into that first pillar. The second pillar mm-hmm. is a little more exclusive in the sense that we will be looking to source not more than a handful of companies for programs that are addressing specific pain points. Uh, and that's where our acceleration piece will kick in. And the idea behind that is to appeal to another demographic representative of that full stack where founders are beyond product market fit and they're looking mm-hmm. to scale and what does it take for them to scale. And lastly, the mm-hmm. other piece of the full stack is how do we appeal to geographies that are beyond Kitchener-Waterloo? And that's where our virtual programming comes in, followed by Startup Visa. So if there are founders out there in the rest of the world who want to come to Canada, we have the virtual program that will keep you immersed, but then we also have the Start a Visa program, which will facilitate the founder coming to Canada and getting mm-hmm. a permit to settle down, etc. So I think our definition of full stack is really that geography, stage, sector, and how do we appeal to all of them? I think that's very interesting. Like, I guess there's always this debate of like, whether or not should a company join an accelerator, right? No matter what, which, which accelerator it is. So your opinion, Jay, like which companies should join the accelerator mm. on your... Yeah. It's a, it boils down to, I think, the founder's philosophy. So if the founding team says, I'm really good at three things between the two founders, but the two things that I'm missing, and typically this is very true of tech entrepreneurs, right? The two things that I'm missing are ability to market ourselves and ability to drive business from being a $10,000 business to a million dollar per month uh, business, right? So I think if mm-hmm. the ability to understand what they are will take a lot of time to figure out is the first qualifier to go to an accelerator. Uh, because you'll get that knowledge without having to actually try it and and, and the world is not that forgiving. So I think, yeah. I think the first qualifier is exactly that. Knowing if you're the type of individual that knows I'm missing a couple of key skills. So that's the first one. The second one is money. In our case, we the core program, we charge entrepreneurs. But in a lot of the traditional accelerators, if you will, they invest um, in the company that gets selected. The obvious difference between the two, barring, of course, the fact that you pay versus get invested, the obvious difference yep. is folks who apply to a Y Combinator or a Techstars who get are often folks who are in that accelerator to leverage the strength of that accelerator. Like in the case of y, uh, YC, the real strength is... Not the money. I mean, the money helps, of course, but the real strength is the network and the ability to implant yourself, in this example, in Silicon Valley and grow from there. And the network of those 100 to 200 people that show up at Demo Day, even if they don't necessarily invest in you, some of them will open doors and it, you know, the word spreads. 
So I think the mm -hmm. value that you see in an accelerator varies from one accelerator to the other. In our case, the value proposition is, is the high touch framework, right? It's almost going to school where on a weekly basis, there are specific milestones that the founder is sort of forced to work on. So I think our value prop is that high touch flavor. So I think answering your question, what the founder wants based off of what the founder is missing should be the determinant of, of the right accelerator. And the good news is post COVID founders can apply to any accelerator anywhere in the world. Most of it is digital, yep. right? So it's great. There was a time when you literally used YC to go to Silicon Valley and the other way around, you had to be in Silicon Valley to go to, to YC, all that's changing. So I think entrepreneurs are at a great advantage in 2022 to be able to choose whichever accelerator they want. Yeah. I think that's an awesome advice. So yeah, uh, I think we have had a hard time come parse up coming up it. <laughs> so I think, you know, although I continue this conversation for hours, uh, we um, have to <laughs> pause it there. So I want to say thank you so much for like coming on to the show today. I think we really need someone who has seen it all, like entrepreneur, being a founder, being an investor, and now being an accelerator, like being work at all those different places, understand the journey of a founder. So really appreciate your insights and I really hope you can come into the show very soon so we can continue. Not at all. Thank you, George. It was uh, wonderful chatting with you as always and looking forward to um, circling back with you without the podcast. Builders Build, a Bluemex podcast, is hosted by George Poo and does not constitute a recommendation for any organization, product, or service. For more Builders Build content, subscribe where you get your podcasts and visit bluemex.io to join us on Discord.